and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski. It feels good to finally be back in the studio again. Thanks everyone for your patience these last few weeks as I catch up on some other things outside of the podcast. For one, I just got a new job. I'm leaving my current job as a personal assistant and I'm headed back to advertising. I'm really excited about it. The agency I'm joining has a great culture. I'll be working on some national clients. And best of all, I can bike to work now and can see the ocean from my office. So I'll never be too disconnected from reality and never too far from the water. I'm not planning for this change to have an effect on the podcast. It's possible, I guess, maybe at first as I'm learning everything with the new job. But I'm not anticipating any big long-term changes. The agency, when they hired me, was psyched about the pod, and they're super supportive of their employees' creative efforts outside the office. I can't wait to get started. The other thing I've been working on these past few weeks is celebrating my parents' 40th wedding anniversary with this huge party. We had it at a hotel in my hometown on July 4th weekend, and it was such a blast. There were about 100 people there. My dad and I decided to take on most of the event planning so my mom could kind of kick her feet up and just enjoy it. It was so much fun. My dad and brother and I planned a few surprises. We called my mom's favorite local baker and had them create a replica of my parents' wedding cake. My dad even found the cake topper from 40 years ago. They also hired their favorite local band to play the event, and my dad worked it out so that my brother and I joined them for a few songs to surprise my mom. I sang and my brother played drums on two Carpenter songs. It was just all really sweet and romantic and great to see my parents being celebrated like that. And speaking of 40, today is our 40th episode. I can't believe it's been a year since my very first Fleetwood Mac episode. But today, we're opening our third eye and diving into one of our most challenging albums yet, Lateralis, by the progressive metal band Tool. My main resources for this episode were two incredible books. I love them both. The first was Unleashed, the story of Tool by music writer Joel McIver. It was really comprehensive and gave me so much insight into this band that I didn't know before. I also read A Perfect Union of Contrary Things, the Maynard James Keenan biography written by his best friend, Sarah Jensen, with Keenan interjecting here and there. I feel like to know Tool, you really need to know him, and learning about his entire life gave me that much more respect for him and for the music. I also had a great resource in my brother, Preston. You may remember him from the King Crimson episode, and he's my guest again today. Beside the fact that a few of you requested Tool specifically, I knew from before I started this podcast that I wanted to do an episode on this band. And my brother was the first person I turned to because Lateralis, just like In the Court of the Crimson King, is one of his all-time favorite albums. A few weeks ago, I called him up and we ended up talking about Lateralis for almost two hours nonstop, a lot of which you'll hear today. Preston always has such intelligent thoughts about the music he listens to, and you can just tell he spends a ton of time with it. I'm very honored he joined me for this episode. Discover communication. 
lyrically and musically, one of the most challenging bands I listen to. And while I wish I could say I've been listening to Tool since my Walkman toting days, really, I've only become a Tool fan within probably the last 8 or 10 years. And my tardiness is probably due to a number of factors, but one in particular stands out. The very idea of this band was always incredibly intimidating. From their creepy music videos and the psychedelic imagery I'd always seen on MTV as a kid, to the intensity and anger I heard in the music, not to mention most everyone I ever saw wearing a tool shirt never looked super friendly. It's just that everything about this band had felt like it was keeping someone like me at an arm's distance. Tool just seemed like a club I would never belong to, and that was okay. That completely changed when I heard Tool's Lateralis for the first time in my early 20s. I mean, really listened and heard it. Listening to this album in its entirety was an absolute paradigm shifter. I had heard songs like Sober and Some Perfect Circle Stuff before, so I was fairly familiar with Maynard James Keenan. But this album affected me in a completely different way. So intricate, so mathematic. The idea of Tool made me uncomfortable at first, but when I really honestly listened to the music, it became so much more rewarding of an experience than I ever could have expected. And every time I listen to this album now, when I listen to most any of Tool's music really, I'm reminded how important it is to take that extra step to look past our initial judgments of music, of people, or otherwise. It's uncomfortable, and it takes a lot of time, two things that as a society we generally like to avoid. But immersing ourselves in a culture that's outside our comfort zones, putting in the work with someone you didn't think you'd get along with at first, that's when we start to feel more connected to what's real in the world and what's real inside us. Maybe by the end of this, you become a brand new Tool fan or an even bigger one than you are right now, or you decide you'll never listen to them at all. Any of those outcomes are okay. But the fact that you're here at all means you have an open mind about the different kinds of music you let into your life. And that is one of the most important things we can do for ourselves as music fans. Stay weird and stay curious. Though I am far from an expert on Tool, the effect this album has on me is one of the main reasons I wanted to do this episode. We'll get into that more when we talk through the tracks with my brother. I also think Tool is, across the board, both miscategorized and misunderstood, so we'll get into why that happens. And finally, I'm so excited to dive into Lateralis, where we'll get a little clarity on Tool's more complicated themes and musical elements. First, let's talk about Tool frontman Maynard James Keenan. Maynard has one of my all-time favorite voices in music, and one of the most interesting backstories I know of. And his story contributes directly to the themes you hear in Tool's music. In Ann Meek's junior English class in Michigan, a quiet athlete named Jim Keenan was starting to find a creative voice. He didn't listen to a word his teacher taught, but instead found in himself a writer, an alter ego of sorts, who he named Count Malcolm Gridley. Malcolm after Malcolm Young from ACDC, and Gridley for his mom Judith's maiden name. He would write poems and humorous drawings to help the other students in his class cope with family problems, breakups, and the plethora of crushing defeats brought on by high school. Keenan would see someone going through a tough time, he'd write a poem about it, sign it Count Malcolm Gridley, and leave it on their desk. 
He reveled in the moment where they found his poems, complete with irony and humor and dark imagery, but never frightening or sinister. Keenan would sit quietly and watch the look on their face out of the corner of his eye to see that he, I mean, Count Malcolm Gridley, had touched on something his classmate was going through. Everyone, of course, knew Gridley was actually Keenan, but they didn't care. They just appreciated that somebody understood. James Herbert Keenan, known as Jimmy by his mom and later Jim by everyone else, grew up in Ohio in a staunchly Southern Baptist family. Jimmy's parents divorced when he was four, and his dad went to live in Michigan, all but disappearing from his life for the next 12 years. Wanting to be called Jim as he got older, he and his mom spent tons of time together. Judith worked so hard to create a sense of stability for Jim, her mischievous but sweet little boy. Judy eventually remarried, took her family to church consistently, and just did everything she could to be the perfect parent. One night, when Jim was 11, his mom suffered a cerebral aneurysm that left her half-paralyzed, half-blind, and unable to speak. This was a huge, huge turning point in Jimmy's life, especially as it related to his relationship with the church. Judy had been a devout churchgoer, dedicated to her fellow parishioners and her God for her entire life. Jim grew up in the church and says he met some wonderful people there. But after Judy's aneurysm, the church turned on her. Parishioners would tell Jim that his mom's illness was a punishment for her sins, that she wasn't right with God, and that's why she got sick. Because of her paralysis, she would have to wear these big, ugly shoes and slacks that would cover up her incontinence pads. And though she made the extremely difficult physical effort to come to church, the congregation made fun of her and questioned whether they should even allow her inside in the pants she was wearing. And Jim was horrified. He couldn't believe the way his mom, a woman so devout, so loving, and giving her entire life, was being treated by her church now that she was paralyzed. In his biography, Keenan writes, quote, They were caught up in dogma. I knew in my heart that the universe is not that ugly and that nobody's sitting in judgment. There's just shit that happens, and if we all help each other, we can work through it. I knew these people were wrong. What they were saying had nothing to do with what I was forced to learn in Bible study. It was weird, crazy judgment, and it made me not want to have any part of it, end quote. Jim did everything he could for his mom. He followed her around just in case she fell down, helped her get dressed in the morning, helped her go to the bathroom, and would bake her favorite cake for her. This is a teenage kid we're talking about. The level of responsibility he took on was immense. He would be late to school a lot because he was making sure that she was settled and comfortable in the mornings. He gave up any semblance of a social life or friends because he just knew it was his responsibility to care for her, to make up for all the years she cared so much for him. After two years or so of this continuing on, Judith had regained a small bit of consciousness, enough to know that this was no life for a 13-year-old. She got on the phone with her ex-husband in Michigan and worked it out that Jim would go to live with his dad and go to high school in Michigan. Though Jim's dad and his new stepmom welcomed him into their home, they all of a sudden had a teenager on their hands and had no idea what to do. 
They defaulted to sports, which Jim actually ended up liking. He got into wrestling and cross country and just tried to make the best of his new surroundings. He was so good at every sport he tried that he ended up becoming the first in the history of his high school to earn 12 varsity letters. But where he really felt at home was in art. Jim would write poems, he drew satirical illustrations, and came up with interesting characters, including drawings of the adventures of a wiry little man named Maynard. He felt most at home when getting feedback on his creations, supported by his teachers and fellow students, and he started becoming deeply inspired by music, especially more imaginative bands like Kiss and Devo. He also met his best friend, Kurt, another artistic soul. Upon graduating high school, Jim 100% saw his career heading in the direction of art and music. But his dad and stepmom worried for him. They didn't see art as a real career path and instead thought his intelligence would be better utilized in a management position. Jim obviously disagreed and insisted art school was the only thing he wanted to do. He knew that to be amongst other artists and musicians and to immerse himself in creativity That would be the key to unlocking the deep, creative soul inside him. But his parents were hesitant to pay for college, as they figured he would just want to drop out eventually, and they were especially not about to pay for art school. So if Jim wasn't going to go and find himself a job, he was on his own. Then in 1981, Jim saw the film Stripes, a movie about two aimless friends who joined the army in search of direction. He loved the humor, the irreverence, the striking similarities between their fictional story and his real one. After looking into it, Jim learned that three years of active service meant that the GI Bill would cover tuition after he left the military. This would be his way to afford art school. Figuring three years was doable, he enlisted, promising his friends he'd be back in three years in full punk regalia and a mohawk, ready for art school and the punk life, and a new name. Maynard. Private James Herbert Keenan served for three years as a spotter for the U.S. Army, one of them while studying at West Point Prep School. Private Keenan was extremely intelligent and a standout soldier. Toward the end of his term of enlistment in the Army, Keenan was even offered an appointment to West Point. He could have become a distinguished military officer. But he knew it wasn't his passion. Art was. And as he became increasingly disillusioned with his place in the military, the personality of Maynard began to take shape. The pledge Jim made to his friends that he would return from the military in a mohawk and punk clothes started feeling even more fitting of his personality. And though West Point might have loved James, they would not have liked Maynard. On his last day of enlistment, Jim's best friend Kurt came to pick him up. They packed his footlocker into the car, and still in his dress greens, Jim's first stop was the JCPenney hair salon. As the stylist ran the shaver down the sides of Jim's head, he felt the army, his responsibility toward his mom, his love of art, his athletic ability, his leadership skills, his place in the world. It all started to come together. And finally, looking back at him in the mirror was Maynard James Keenan. Maynard headed to art school in Michigan, and though he enjoyed the creative outlet art provided, it was music where he ended up finding his true calling. 
He learned that unlike art, a more independent activity, with music, he and others could tune into each other to create rhythms and images. That connection and the prerequisite of good communication was more where he felt at home. After school came a quick stint in Boston working as an interior designer for a pet store. Maynard always loved animals. He still does. So it was a good fit until he was transferred to another pet store in Los Angeles. It was there that he found his people, got deep into the music scene, and left the pet store business for good to pursue music. He started out playing bass and singing for a few bands in L.A., along the way meeting many of the bandmates who would later join him in Tool. The first was drummer Danny Carey, who was active in the L.A. music scene at the time and played drums as Danny Longlegs for a comedy rock band called Green Jello. Maynard sang backups for them for a few years, and he and Carey developed a friendship. Side note about Danny Carey, he is legitimately one of my all-time favorite musicians. Maynard is on that list too, but Carey is such an iconic, creative drummer with a long list of collaborations and studio credits. He's played with everyone from Les Claypool to Carole King. Carey is one on a very short list of people who, if I ever met them in person, I would be so overwhelmed that I'm pretty sure I would have no words. I talked about this a little bit with my brother, who also counts Carrie amongst his influences as a drummer. I mean, this is going to sound like cheesy, but he's been a part of my part of my life for so long at this point. Like he was my first he was my first favorite drummer. I mean, Tool, I, I would consider them to be my like first, like my first favorite band. And yeah, meeting anyone from that band, they, they've been such a like a monolithic um, presence in my life for so long. I don't even know how I would how I'd react Honestly. Well, and Danny Carey's presence too. What is he like? He's like 6'4 or something. He's, he's big, huge. He's, a big guy. <laughs> he's humongous. So just the just being in his presence, like I I don't know how, but if that happens to either me or you someday, I mean, I feel like that that would just be I could die pretty happy. It's a it's a bucket list thing for sure. The next future member and co-founder of Tool, who Maynard met, was guitarist Adam Jones. Jones had heard Maynard's vocals on a demo years prior, and when he learned Maynard was living in L.A., Jones convinced him they should start a band together. Jones had been studying art and sculpture in Los Angeles and eventually used his skills in film to get into special effects and stop motion. He would later direct the majority of Tool music videos, many of which use his stop motion techniques. Before he joined Tool, Jones also worked in makeup and set design for major Hollywood films, including Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, Dances with Wolves, and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. On the side, Jones was an extremely accomplished musician and became a guitar virtuoso essentially by learning on his own. Once Jones had convinced Maynard to start a band together, they found bassist Paul D'Amour, who would later be replaced by Justin Chancellor. 
Chancellor started with Tool in the mid-90s after his band Peach went on a European tour with the band, and he's who you hear on bass on today's album. Many of the auditions Maynard and Adam had scheduled for a drummer either hadn't showed up or weren't up to snuff. So Adam's neighbor, and turns out Maynard's friend too, Danny Carey, offered to sit in on drums for a little while, and everything suddenly clicked. In 1990, Tool officially formed. They played around L.A. for a little while, and after gaining enough of a following, the band caught the attention of Lou Maglia of Zoo Entertainment. Two years after their formation, the band released the Opiate EP in 1992. If you're a new artist, you and your record label tend to hope that your EP is what gets fans excited for more full-length albums to come. But when Opiate was released and the music-buying public was introduced to Tool for the first time, no one knew what to do with it. Metal fans, music press, and even Tool's label were baffled by it. Opiate was much too aggressive for any radio play. The artwork and music videos were disturbing. The band melded together horror and humor in a twisted new way, and as a result, early reviewers of Tool were at a loss when it came to actually putting Tool in a category. There were grunge elements, metal elements, alternative rock, progressive. The band didn't really, and still doesn't really, fit into one genre. I think the closest at this point is probably progressive metal, but Tool was just Tool. That was their genre and they never shied away from that or allowed their record label to stereotype them or interfere too much. And it was that outlook that helped Tool create a more natural musical evolution throughout their career, constantly building on everything they'd done before. After Tool's EP, their first full-length release, Undertow, came out the following year. By the time Undertow released, people still weren't really ready for intelligent heavy metal. When you think of 1993 in metal, there were talented bands, but not many were making music about the inner workings of the mind, or our place in the physical world. So how has Tool's huge cult following built and built over decades, and why did albums like Undertow go multi-platinum much later? Because Tool's music pioneered a modern version of the idea that we could all invest a lot more time into understanding the music we listen to. Of course, I say a modern version of that idea because they carried it on from their prog predecessors and idols like King Crimson and Yes. Increasingly, as a music listening culture, we have become more and more interested in studying and spending more time with our music. And for anyone who appreciates a little harder edge, Tool is the perfect medium for that still today. 
As bassist Paul D'Amore left the band and Justin Chancellor joined, Tool worked on their second studio album, Anima. The title was inspired by the Carl Jung theory of the anima, which in the unconscious is the female side of a man's psyche. And just because they can't help themselves, the title was also inspired by an enema, which is a little more self-explanatory. By the time Anima came out, people were really starting to catch on, especially Tool fans. Maynard says there were some wackos who would show up at his doorstep trying to do a seance, and the band always loved messing with their fans with pranks and other hijinks. But for the most part, they loved that Tool fans were starting to understand the band on a cerebral level rather than just something to mosh to. But yet, Tool was still maddeningly lumped in with other bands of the day, and they were frustrated by that. When Opiate came out, journalists compared Tool to Nirvana. When Undertow came out, they were compared to Nine Inch Nails. They just wanted to be Tool. And this idea of the anima, the duality of male and female, that's what began to set Tool apart. In Joel McIver's book, Maynard says, quote, I do know that compared to a lot of the bands that we get lumped in with, I have a more open nature than most of my so-called peers. This totally male, angst-filled energy is coming off of a lot of these guys. I listen to Joni Mitchell, so draw your own conclusions. Most hard rock bands have a very masculine, linear approach, while I think there's more of a feminine balance to our point of view. I think that our softer, more compassionate edge is missed a lot of the time. End quote. By the end of 1997, Tool was a massive success, headlining Lollapalooza and winning Grammy Awards. But behind the scenes, they would spend the next few years in a nasty legal battle with their record label. I won't get into the specifics, but basically the band believed their contract was up and were entertaining other offers. But according to Volcano Entertainment, the successor to label Zoo Entertainment, the contract was still in effect. The party settled out of court and Tool stayed on with Volcano for another three-album deal, the third of which will come out next month. But we'll get there. In the five years between Anima and the band's next album, which would be Lateralis, the band stayed pretty busy, especially Maynard. He founded a new band, A Perfect Circle, in 1999, and they released their debut album, Mare de Nam, in 2000. also made a ton of friends in LA throughout his career, and especially around this time. He and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine were great friends, so much so in fact that before Tool started, Maynard was considered to sing lead vocals for Rage before they brought on Zack De La Roca. 
Maynard was also really active in the underground stand-up comedy scene. Most of Maynard's work, illustrations, writing, and otherwise, has a tinge of humor and satire to it, including Tool. So his natural connection to the comedy world made a lot of sense. He had a deep appreciation for comedian Bill Hicks, a good friend of the band's who died in 1994 at age 32. Tool dedicated Anima to his memory and referenced him often in their work. In L.A., Maynard also developed a really close friendship with comedian and actor David Cross, who is perhaps most well-known for his role as Tobias Funke in Arrested Development and the HBO sketch comedy series Mr. Show, which he created with Bob Odenkirk. In fact, it was on the very first episode of Mr. Show that the world was first introduced to Maynard's side project, the fictional but eventually real-life touring band, Pussifer. <laughs> Guilty, yeah, but he, you know, but he, he knows it. You know? I mean, you're guilty. You don't know it. So, you know, who's really in jail? Pussifer has had a wide range of members and collaborative artists, but Maynard has been the only permanent band member. As Pussifer, Maynard has performed or recorded material with musicians including Tim Comerford from Rage Against the Machine, Joey Jordison from Slipknot, Nine Inch Nails, and his son Devo Keenan, to name just a few. Maynard sees Pussifer, a combination of the words pussy and Lucifer, as his, quote, creative subconscious and an opportunity to combine his love of comedy and music. Some Pussifer's song and album titles include Country Boner, Rocket Mantastic, V is for Vagina, and Donkey Punch the Night. As of 2017, Pussifer still had tour dates on the schedule. So although Keenan is somewhat reclusive these days, Pussifer is still very much alive and probably will be for as long as he is. I was over. In January 2001, it was announced that Tool would be back with a new full-length album titled Systema Encephale. Though later, it was announced to be a ruse, a fake album title to impede bootleggers, which had become a huge problem by 2001. So after coming clean, they announced the actual title of the album, Evasion, also releasing many of the song titles that fans would be hearing on this new album, including Bushwhacker, Bindle Cup, Smell Me, Buzz's Revenge, and Poopy the Clown. They really had fun with these titles, especially since, surprise, these were all fake too. Because one month later, the band finally and truthfully announced that the album would be titled Lateralis. Maynard promised this album would be a departure from Tool's earlier conventions and a marked progression of their songwriting and general philosophy. This album would achieve structure even without the verse-chorus-verse format, would achieve mood by playing with time and dissonance, and would create harmonies and layering that may not be able to be replicated live. In short, Lateralis would blow everyone away. And it did. Lateralis is an interesting study in progressive music theory because we're challenged in every single song to redefine what we accept as time. Music in general, as uninhibited as it may be as a creative outlet, is always concerning itself with time. How fast or slow is the song? How long is the song? Where the beat is? 
the 4-4 time signature that always has and always will dominate pop music. But we're talking about a band today that doesn't allow time to dictate their decision-making. Instead, they dictate time and use it to the advantage of the music. Among other genres like progressive metal and even art rock, I would also consider Lateralis a math rock album. Some characteristics of that include a lot of dissonance, odd rhythmic structures and rare time signatures, and vocals as another instrument in the mix rather than having a quote-unquote frontman. But also in the literal sense, it's math rock because one of the main themes that ties this album together is the idea of sacred geometry. As we go through the tracks in a moment, we'll talk about the golden ratio, Fibonacci numbers, and how Saturn's orbit around the sun affects us here on Earth. Basically just expect a new level of full-fledged geekery in today's episode. Feeling really in my element with this one. We'll talk also about the album structure of Lateralis and how some songs blend with others for specific reasons. My brother actually has a theory as to the formula of the structure. I worked out a recipe for making Lateralis. Because this album is a bit formulaic. I mean, the for- I like the formula works, but it is a little formulaic. Okay, so first what you're going to want to do is <laughs> you want to establish a, d- a dark groove in kind of a non-standard time signature on, on one instrument. Mm-hmm. You get that going for a bit. You're going to want to layer in the rest of the band one by one. Keep stirring. Get the rest of the instruments involved. Turn the bass way up. Throw in some cryptic, weird, psychedelic lyrics expressing... <laughs> frustration at being at being human or just experiencing human things mm-hmm. like boredom uh the vocals you're going to want to make those really soft and melodic during the first verse and then <laughs> angsty and shouty during the chorus or vice versa either way works just fine <laughs> um you're, i know what you're going to want to do at this point you're going to want to throw in a guitar solo sure i'm going to tell you don't bother with the guitar solos okay just focus on the groove when when you're thinking the song should reach its climax, don't do it. You're going to want to take a break in the middle for a really slow, pretty, <laughs> melodic part that kind of just halts the song, stops it in its tracks, and puts it on a different direction entirely. Keep that going for a little bit. And then you're going to want to heat it back up because you're going to want to crescendo into something that I call a toolgasm, which is essentially the <laughs> outro that. of the song. <laughs> it's the end of the song. Everyone's going bonkers. There are drum fills literally everywhere. Everything is a drum fill. Drum fills inside of drum fills. Maynard is screaming his brains out. And then you end the song with some random residual sounds, electronics, some like, uh, you know, bouncy drums, maybe. And uh, congratulations, you made a you've made a song on Lateralis. Now you just repeat that uh, four or five times, pepper in some like noisy filler tracks. And uh, that's how you uh, that's how you make this album. Like Preston mentioned, lyrically, Lateralis is mainly about what it's like to be a human. It makes you think critically about what it's like. The ups, downs, anger, sadness, interactions with other humans, both good and bad, and the limitations of physical humanity. And most importantly, what we can do to keep things moving forward constructively and keep the inertia going. So at this point, let's dive a little deeper into each track, starting with The Grudge.
I heard a quote recently that I'm reminded of a lot when I listen to The Grudge. What you allow is what will continue. I don't know who said that initially, but it's a simple thought that holds a lot of power. What you allow is what will continue. This boils down to the simple fact that we all have a lot more control over our own destiny than we'd like to believe. You don't like your job? If you don't change, things will stay the same. Are there people in your life who don't respect you? If you don't create boundaries for yourself, that treatment will continue. We like to push off a lot of the inconveniences and problems and deep-seated issues in our lives and attribute them to something else, someone else. And in most cases, not all, but most, we are capable of making a change that would improve our situation. The change is often extremely difficult and may require a lot of soul-searching, but it has to be done, and it has to be done by our own selves. In The Grudge, Keenan sings of Saturn ascending. In astrology, Saturn's return means that the planet Saturn has made one full orbit around the sun and returns to the sign it was in when you were born. It usually takes around 28 or 29 years for this to happen, then happens in that increment throughout your life. So it becomes almost like a rite of passage at three different points in your life. Your late 20s, leaving youth and entering adulthood, late 50s, where you're entering maturity, and then in your 80s, usually the final spin around the sun, you enter wise old age. Why this is important is that Saturn's return gives us a nudge, a chance to reevaluate our lives at these really momentous times. It's an opportunity to decide what we will allow to continue and make the changes that need to be made. Saturn's return forces you to look at your life. Are you going to stay stagnant, keep that grudge going, and keep allowing things in that you don't want in your life? Or make a change, get the toxicity out, and start fresh? I just turned 30 in November, and I have to say that these past few years, I think I felt this. I'm not even into astrology, but re-listening to this song and reading up on the return of Saturn has been mind-boggling. 28 and 29 were incredibly tumultuous years for me, and I feel like I'm just now settling back in. I've got a new job I'm really excited about. I feel like I'm connecting better with my friends. I feel a little more even keel mentally. I'm exercising more and have more energy. Just a lot that I hadn't been feeling for a long time. Maybe I'm overthinking it and fitting this all into a cozy little narrative now that I can associate it with the alignment of the planets. But I just feel like I did a lot of healthy reevaluating this past year. Perhaps Saturn was giving me a nudge and I just didn't realize it. Which brings us to the other side of Saturn's return that we have to beware. Ignoring it. Seeing the opportunity and letting it pass us by, not changing a thing because it's just easier to forget about it right now and just hope something changes on its own. Hoping the respect we know we deserve at work will all of a sudden happen. Or the grudge we're holding will magically resolve. It won't. And when it doesn't, we'll be frustrated that nothing has changed. And even more frustrated when we realize we can't blame anyone else but ourselves. If we don't make it past Saturn's return, we stay stagnant. Maynard lets out a huge primal scream at the end of the grudge that I absolutely love. Because in my eyes, this is a choose-your-own-ending kind of moment. Either this scream is out of frustration and blame of other people and other things for the fact that nothing is getting better for us, or it is our rebirth, 
getting everything toxic out and releasing it into the air to dissipate. It's our choice to decide what that screen means for us. Let's move on to Eon Blue Apocalypse. This is the first melodic break we get on Lateralis, and it's an incredibly pretty moment, courtesy of guitarist Adam Jones. I think it serves as like kind of a breather between the crazy ending of the grudge and then the intro of the patient. Which if um, you're if we're talking recipes here, like that happens again also on Lateralis. Right, yeah. This this is gonna be your noisy filler that you're gonna use is to, to break up the the constant explosions. An Eon Blue Apocalypse actually it's Adam Jones and it's named after his Great Dane. Who had, who had died, his dog died a couple years before Lateralis, and his dog's name was Eon Blue. Oh, okay. It, you can kind of, when you when you know that too, like you can kind of hear more so a lot of like sadness in this song. Uh, it's so, so, so pretty, but you can hear that he has lost something really important to him. Yeah, I just remember like learning this, uh, how to play the song on guitar. And it's a mm -hmm. really cool like technique to use because it, it's not like um, immediately intuitive to like, because you have to pick, you you tremolo pick a string and then hammer on on a different string, which isn't like an intuitive way of playing, but it actually um, it sounds really good. It's it's not very difficult to play. Up next is the patient.
I read somewhere uh, a while ago that this song is about his mom. It's about like putting up with boredom while you're like laying in bed and unable to move. I think is their favorite time signature because the grudge is also in five five four or five eight or whatever um i think it's i think it's definitely one of my favorite time signatures because it's um you can like groove in five but it's it's not like um you know it's not as quote unquote obvious as four Like The Grudge, The Patient is another great example of the way Maynard James Keenan writes music that is productive for him and so many others who listen to Tool. Keenan actually makes a very precise distinction in McIver's book, one I don't think I'll ever forget. He says, quote, anger is a constructive emotion, hate is not, end quote. And if you listen to Tool's music, it follows that notion. It's not hateful. It's angry, and it's aggressive, sometimes borderline psychotic but they don't waste their time with empty messages of hate. They use the limited time they have with their fans to its fullest by creating music that makes us think and consider and feel something. Keenan also makes a great point that I believe fits so well with the patient in particular, and it's what drove him to really put everything of himself into tool. He says, quote, If you have your sight and your speech and your hearing, and you're able to move and walk, you're able to grab things, if you don't take advantage of that, it's probably because you haven't watched somebody lose it. I witnessed people that can't do that or were able to do that and then became unable to do that. And that instilled in me a sense of responsibility to use my talents, not bury them, end quote. Some food for thought if you were wondering if the world needs you and your talents. It does. Uh, let's talk about mantra. Yeah, so this is another one of your your uh, weird noise fillers. Do you know what this noise is? Is this the cat? This is the cat. <laughs> is this the cat? Is this what a cat sounds like? This is, this is Puppy Cat. This is Maynard's cat, Puppy Cat. <laughs> he's giving him, he's giving Puppy Cat a very gentle squeeze. Not hurting the animal. Like, let me be clear. It was his cat and he loved his cat. So he was giving a gentle squeeze and the cat let out this sort of like moan. <laughs> so he was like, well, that's an interesting sound. Set up a recorder. Well, that's going in a tool song. That's going in a tool song. Set up a recorder next to the cat, did it again, and the cat made the same moaning sound, and he <laughs> takes that clip and slows it way down, and that's what you hear in this song. 
When Lateralis came out, the band had effectively been dormant for five years. So for everyone who was listening to the new metal genre of the early 2000s, this album was their first introduction to Tool. And Schism, which was all over the radio at the time, might have been the first song they heard. It was my first introduction to Tool. Schism walks that perfectly fine line where it's a masterfully written song, but it also works for the mainstream. It's why almost 20 years later, you still hear it on rock radio. Maynard James Keenan says that the song Schism was an extremely significant song as it pertained to the relationship between the members of Tool. They had just gotten off a five-year hiatus, and he said it was the guy's ability to communicate with each other that saved the band. I told my brother that's one of the reasons I think Schism, menacing sounding as it is, is actually a positive song about communication and relationships. He thought a little differently. I always thought it was about a toxic relationship. So I, I don't know if I get the pot, I don't get like a positive vibe from this song at all. I get a positive vibe in that when he says, I know the pieces fit, because he repeats that a lot. I know the pieces right. fit. And I think what he's saying there, and the reason that I think that it has a positive spin on it, is that, like, I know the pieces fit. I know we have the capacity to interact with each other as humans. Yeah. And I know that we love each other. But right now, that they're not fitting together. I guess it's not really positive when he says, like, I've done the math enough to know the dangers of our second guessing, doomed to crumble unless we grow and strengthen our communication. So I think that's what I mean by sure. positive, yeah. where it's like, okay. all right, well, here's how to fix it. While Tool plays around with time, not every Tool song is intentionally written out in a specific time signature. We talked about how songs like Schism can evolve, both during soundcheck and during recording sessions. When they are like soundchecking even for shows and stuff, they'll stand up mm -hmm. on stage and riff together just to like get warmed up or whatever, but they'll keep a recorder going because they'll go back and revisit some of the stuff that they have played together because it happens so naturally. And that's how mm -hmm. they write a lot of their music. Like with the yeah. exception of a song like Lateralis, for instance, which is very, very specifically a composition, yeah. a composition relating to time. But Danny Carey, like he kind of drives a lot of that stuff. Like a lot of the, the recording sessions and a lot of the writing sessions. This song, for instance, he came up with his time signature like off the cuff, essentially. And the, the time signature, I think, goes from 5-4 to 6-4 to 3-8 to 13-8 to 10-8. But the band jokingly called the time signature of this song six and a half over eight. So they all came up with like, okay, well, we kind of have started to follow a pattern that Danny's coming up with here. Don't really know. I mean, they, they go by meter, really. They don't, they don't really... They don't all like count one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six. Like they don't all count that, they just sort of feel it. Cold silence, cold silence, cold silence. 
also really love the line in the bridge toward the end, where he says, cold silence has a tendency to atrophy any sense of compassion between supposed lovers. It's a lot of words to basically say, just talk to each other. We've all at one point or another given someone the silent treatment or assumed they're mind readers. But when has that been productive in our relationships? Granted, sometimes we just need some time away and then we'll come back and be a little more level-headed. But in the end, communication holds so much weight and schism expresses both the frustration and the resolve of that. on to the next two songs, which are connected to each other in a really specific way, so we'll talk about them together. Parable and Parabola. Parable is kind of like a glorified intro to Parabola, but they're separate tracks. This is another tool song where geometry very much comes into play, and it starts with the title, Parabola. A parabola is a U-shaped curve. For a visual, think of what happens when a football is thrown into the air. It starts at the bottom, in your hand, arcs up and hits an apex, and then arcs down symmetrically as it's under the influence of gravity. This shape is important because it relates to another really productive and relatable sentiment in the lyrics of this song. Because if you take that parabola and flip it, or now it starts at the top, arcs down to its lowest point, and comes back up again, the math is the same. When Keenan says, this body holding me, feeling eternal, all this pain is an illusion, he is reminding us that we're going to find ourselves at rock bottom in the physical world sometimes. We'll hurt, we'll ache, we'll feel the lowest we've ever felt. But just as the football can't stay in the air forever, the lowest point of the parabola is not going to last forever either. You'll be up for air soon, and it's going to get better. My brother had a good point also, a little bit different thought about this song from mine. I get a vibe where like he's saying that human bodies are limited, and they're limited by pain and by like, you know, the, the you know, whatever limitations are to being human, but like the mind and consciousness is like infinitely capable. Preston and I did agree on one thing though, that the single greatest moment on this album is the one that connects the end of Parable and the beginning of Parabola. It just makes me so happy. I'll shut up now so you can sit back and soak in the metal of it all.
vehicles are so on point throughout Lateralis, but especially so on Parabola. We also hear a very appropriate guitar solo from Adam Jones, who is that rare breed of a virtuosic guitar player who doesn't like to show off. And guitar solos are rare for Tool anyway. Here's Preston. There aren't like guitar solos very often in, in Tool music. I mean, I'm, there's like a handful of songs that contain like a legitimate feature guitar solo. I think that, I think that part of that is because Tool doesn't want to have a frontman necessarily, and they just want to have the whole band being like working together as equals towards like a, a finished product. And I think that is why they don't have um, very many guitar solos. At the end of at the end of Parabola, there is like a little bit of a, a tiny little guitar lick at the end. That sounds like Roundabout by Yes. Let's move on to the next track, Ticks and Leeches. This song actually, this song reminds me of, it reminds me of their old stuff, like something, it would fit on Anima and maybe even like Undertow, arguably better than it fits on this album. Yeah, and the instruments are like, I mean, it's in, what is it, in like seven or something. So it's in a weird time signature, but it's also like really straightforward. There's nothing too heady about this song. The vocals are almost unhinged and like a lot louder than the rest of the album too. I really like this song, and I appreciate the anger and frustration the band expresses at the ticks and leeches of the world. The parasites who latch onto you because you're famous, the soul suckers of the music industry, or basically anyone who takes advantage of other people. 
Ticks and Leeches is a good example going back to what we talked about earlier, with Tool choosing to focus on the constructive emotion of anger rather than hate. It's one of the things I've come to understand and appreciate about Tool more and more over the years. With hate rearing its ugly head on a daily basis in the world, the injustices, the abuse, the horrific things we see on the news every day, Tool's strong, commanding music is meant to help us deal with those things that make us angry and use that to create something positive in the world rather than just harboring hate in our hearts. On to the art piece of this album, the title track, Lateralis. Before we get too far into this song, a quick refresher on Fibonacci numbers. The Fibonacci sequence is a series of numbers in which each number is found by adding the two numbers that come before it. The sequence begins with zero and goes 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, and so on. The three you get from adding the one and two that come before it, the five you get from adding the two and three that come before that, and it's just this infinite sequence of numbers. There are two major things to know about this sequence. Number one, if you were to use those numbers to make squares, the result is a perfect spiral. And we see this in nature a lot. Think about the way a snail shell is shaped or the center of a sunflower. If you have a pineapple or a head of cauliflower in your kitchen right now, take a look at how those are built. And if you don't, take a look at your own body. Most of the parts of your body follow the numbers 1, 2, 3, and 5. 
one nose, two eyes, three segments to each of our limbs, and five fingers and toes on each of our hands and feet. Secondly, there's a special relationship between Fibonacci numbers and the golden ratio, a special number that appears a lot in architecture, art, in nature with those spirals, and all around us, really. It's considered the most pleasing to the eye. And when you take any two consecutive Fibonacci numbers, you'll find that their ratio is extremely close to the golden ratio, 1.618. Okay, all that said, the golden ratio and Fibonacci sequence plays out in lateralis in a few really interesting ways. For one, the original title for this song was supposed to be 987, which is a Fibonacci number, 987. Also, it made me laugh when I learned recently that Maynard's vocals begin exactly at 1 minute and 37 seconds into the song, which equates to 1.618. Also, a majority of the song is based upon the time signature sequence of 98, 88, and 74. Let's count that out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like the syllables, uh, like the syllables he's enunciating, uh, like fall in line with the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, because he says black, then white are all I see. So that's black, then is one, one, two, all I see is three. In my infancy is five. Red and yellow then came to be is eight. And then he comes back down again. He doesn't go up to 13, but he comes back down to five, yeah. reaching out to me, lets me see, and that's three. Do you know the? Well, this is this is not this is just a, a theory. But do you know the the um, the relevance of the black, white, and yellow and red? No. He's talking about in my infancy, like black, white. Um, obviously, when when you're an infant, you can't really see anything, and then the first thing you see when you're born is like blinding light of a of an operating room. Right, black then, being in um, the womb, and then white being like or out out of the body. And then. You know, once you develop the ability to see colors, then red and yellow. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, that drum part is bonkers. During that break, the like the hi hat part, and then when he does the like the the hi hat and the snare, I just I I can't. <laughs> they were recording it you can divide that sequence into groups of three and then at the breakdown the drum groove is in five Danny Danny was playing the drum groove at the breakdown in five and everyone else was playing it in six
We'll talk about the next three songs as a grouping, Disposition, Reflection, and Triad. They blend together well on this album and it feels pretty intentional. Although Preston told me that the order of songs on his vinyl copy is a little different. Because it makes sense to connect Disposition and Reflection and, and Triad, but I have on the vinyl release of this, due to like space limitations on a vinyl record, Disposition and Reflection are not, they're not next to each other on the track listing. What? So on my copy, Disposition is after, it's after Parabola and before Ticks and Leeches. And then That's odd. it goes from Lateralis to Reflection. Yeah, so you end up missing out. So you do end up missing out on the transition between yeah, disposition and reflection. Yeah, because I always kind of thought I, I, I keep those three in my head as like a, a grouping. But you know what? Um, and this is actually irrelevant because you got to flip the record anyway. But um, the outro of disposition sort of kind of also leads into ticks and leeches. Oh, is it the same like note? It's like the tom. The disposition ends with like a, a tom like being hit. Well, that was smart. Disposition comes first and is a welcome respite after a long string of really intense songs. It follows a similar but more extended pattern to the intensity of The Grudge at the very beginning, one intense song followed by one palate cleanser song, Eon Blue Apocalypse. Because then here we have Schism, Parabola, Ticks and Leeches, and Lateralis, and then another grouping of palate cleanser songs. It's an interesting way to format an album and lends itself well to the idea that you could listen to the songs on this album in nearly any order and it would make for an interesting story. Reflection is next, continuing the ambient mood. It almost puts you in a trance of sorts, and is a song I'd love to do yoga to sometime. It's more of an electronic moment than disposition, which was a little more acoustic. My theory is, and the reason that I also connect disposition and reflection in my head is that um, reflection, I think, is an experience, an ego death experience. Yeah, no, I get um, that from reflection, yeah. So I think that disposition is, as the intro to that, is when he's actually taking the drug. Okay. Or he's, I, I, I think, like where he's actually dropping the acid, where he's like, 
mention this to me, mention something, mention anything, like, okay. where am I? Like, talk to me, what am I doing? And then watching the weather change. And then the watch weather the change. weather change. Like, yeah, you just watch, not you stare out the window. Okay. Um, or or so, watch the weather change could be like, a drug, like a, you know, like a Oh, in, in your head, like start that the storm is starting yeah. in your head. I see. I like that. I or like that. the storm clears up or however, you know. I think disposition, like parable is to parabola, it's like an intro almost, um, like kind of setting us up for the next, the next song. Yeah. I like the vocals on reflection. I really like how they kind of sound almost like he recorded them backward, like they're being sucked into themselves. Right. Yeah. But I don't think he did. I think it's just an effect that they're using on the vocal, on the vocal track. Once you destroy your own ego and your sense of like self-importance and you stop comparing yourself to other people, you'll like join this infinitely capable hive mind of, of human consciousness. Uh, I think that might be what he's getting at. Which is different. So you talked about ego death in the Pet Sounds episode, to, not to you know make too many callbacks, but you know, I think you'd consider what happened to Brian Wilson a, a ego death or something, you know, something similar to it. I think it's important to, if you're gonna destroy your ego, do it willingly. I think that's the main, the main point here. Make sure you're ready to join the collective consciousness. Before you do that, you have to have your intentions very much set for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's, an ego death is a, is a very selfish, and I'm saying that word in a, a positive context, but a selfish thing to do, and a selfish decision to make. Yeah. And if you, if you give up your sense of self-importance and your self-esteem, you do like destroy like a, a, a huge part of your personality. But like if everyone's doing that, if everyone does that at once, then we, could, we can get past our, the things that make us different and work on stuff that's like way beyond our comprehension at the moment. This might sound stupid, but I was swimming around in the ocean this morning. And when you're out there, and there weren't that many people in the water, and there are some people like on the beach or whatever, but it was pretty early in the morning. And when you're in the water, it, it was really flat when I got out there. There were almost like, there was almost no break in the wave. Like it was mm -hmm. like a lake. So you get out there and you just, it's very salty water, obviously. So you just float, you really just float out there. And there was a point where I was laying I was floating at the top of the water, just like laying there and like kind of staring and the sun was like shining down, it was super bright. And all I could hear, so my, my ears were below the water and all I could really hear was, if you imagine what it sounds like when sand is rubbing against other sand in the water, it's like this Yeah, okay. I could hear that in my ears. 
and you there's a point where you're out there and if you let yourself just kind of float and chill for a second, you remember how freaking small and insignificant you are. And you're in this gigantic ocean and the waves start to come. Like they'll start to get bigger and bigger as the tide changes. And like you're out there and all of a sudden these these waves are starting to move you a little bit. And you're like, well, shoot, like I'm I'm nothing. I am I am insignificant here. And that's it's not an ego death, but it's a it's a small representation, I think, of that where you're put in a position, you're putting yourself in a, in a position by choice to make yourself feel insignificant yeah um but it's a productive feeling it's not like shutting yourself down like looking in the mirror and hating yourself like that's that feeling of insignificance but make putting yourself in a situation like i did this morning i put myself in the ocean which could kill me the ocean could kill me there are there are hurricanes there are sharks there are you know stingrays and jellyfish and yeah russian (laughs) russian submarines any you know there the ocean is something that you you put yourself into um and it can either go really 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 well uh where you have a moment like i had this morning where you just shut down and like you're very relaxed and calm or it can go very poorly and very scary very quickly um so that i I think that's like a mini i i something that i was thinking about this morning especially as it related to this Mm -hmm. song because you just you need those moments in your life where you kind of get knocked down a peg a little bit. Yeah. So what you did sounds a lot like um, like a sensory deprivation exercise where like you de- you deprive your brain of most external noise and you just let your brain behave like in, in almost a almost in a vacuum. And then when it starts doing that, you can either like start hallucinating <laughs> or you can like it, it lets your brain sort of work calmly for a second and lets it like process things that you don't have time to think about because you're too busy like I don't know like hearing chatter all around you Yeah, we can talk about Triad, I guess. I don't have much to say about Triad, to be honest. It's just a a riff. You know, I almost, I, in my notes, I said basically just guitar-based instrumental. And then my other note was, what are your thoughts on this song? (laughs) I was hoping that you would have something to talk about with it. There's nothing to unpack here. It's, it's, it's an outro. It's like, it's like something, I don't know. It's almost like bumper music when you're leaving a show, like. It's just that kind of stuff. You're you're heading out. The album is wrapping up. Before all hell breaks loose in Fi Up the Oyad. Stick around too long, yeah. When you look past the threatening industrial noise in this song, you'll hear a man making a phone call. He claims to be an ex-employee of Area 51, the secret U.S. military site in Nevada. I was let go on a medical discharge. 
This was a real phone call, and my brother explained where this clip came from. So there is this radio show called Coast to Coast, um, hosted by a man named Art Bell. Um, and if, if you, I know you listened to the last podcast on the left. They talk about Art Bell and Coast to Coast a lot. It's it's you know their primary influence I think as as podcast. So it's I mean it's a big it's a big popular show. They talk about paranormal stuff, about conspiracy theories, and had a huge, a surprisingly large viewership. Um, and they would have crazy people call in with like weird conspiracy theorists all the time. Uh, one time, some dude called in, and he seemed to have some sort of government or whatever confidential knowledge of some sort of alien presence or alien contact on earth and he was calling he called art bell called this radio station um kind of frantically in a panic uh to sort of warn the the listeners that the aliens were not friendly they were coming to kill us and they're going to destroy our population centers and the weird one of the the weirdest part about this and why i think it's why i think it's like one of the most popular um moments on that show is because right in the middle of the call the satellite transmission cut out it just it just straight up cut out and like cut the guy off and then the radio show ended and that's not something that like art did or not something that the dude who was calling him could have done it just happened to cut out i didn't know that yeah so that's where the call ends is where the transmission cuts out but if you think about it and it does sound like a really really weird coincidence but if you think about it um people are calling into that show with like weird conspiracy theories theories all the time and like if this transmission was going to cut out pretty high likelihood that it was going to cut someone off while they were talking about a a crazy conspiracy theory where they were talking Um, about area 51 (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean it's just it's just a really a really weird call and uh I mean, you, you can find it in full. I don't think the one the one on the album is not the full call. Uh, it's just a snippet of right. it. Um, do we think that this guy really did work for the government? Do you think he was maybe not super right in the head? Do we think that it was a hoax? Supposedly, the guy called back a second time and talked to Art Bell on the show and was like, it's me. I'm the one who made the call. This is my actual voice. I was playing a character. And he did the voice. And he did the voice that he did. It did. It sound. It sounds similar. I don't know if it. It doesn't sound exactly the same, but it's close enough, I guess. So the accepted. Unfortunately, the accepted explanation was a hoax that the guy owned up to. I mean, it also could have been some dude who was just going through a manic episode or something. Um, and then the person who called later was like another person just trying to get in on the fun, or it's a dude that just ran away from Area Fifty One, who's being followed by you know the the FBI who, who, who knows something and wanted to warn us. Fiepti Oyad. The only thing I could find for this was that it is in an occult language um, and it means the voice of God, which is a funny, uh, a funny irony given the voice that you hear in this song, which is not the voice of God, but it's a voice that a lot of people maybe believed it's it it's almost a commentary on anybody who's on the radio who has that ability who has that that soapbox to speak we look at them as as god like we look at that as truth the <laughs> 
cover art for Lateralis is pretty cool. I own the CD and the jewel case has some layers to it. No lyrics printed anywhere, of course, and Lateralis is endearingly spelled wrong on the back with an I instead of a U, which is a funny quirk long appreciated by Tool fans. But the design of the album, and most of Tool's artwork, was done by artist Alex Gray. There's a sleeve that slides off with the Tool logo and Lateralis on the front, then the inside booklet is made of a clear, paper-thin plastic. You see an illustration of a man, and as you flip through the booklet, the illustration of him goes deeper and deeper into his body. You start to see his muscles, then his bones, then the inside of his organs, and the veins, and all the small details that make him human. Throughout, you see his third eye and other geometrical imagery on him or in the background. The man in the transparent booklet is a reminder of the union of the physical and the spiritual. Tool toured for Lateralis in the years following the album's release, including a 10-show mini-tour with King Crimson, a band they had always idolized. By this point, Tool had developed a strong cult following, they were touring like crazy, and reaching the pinnacle of their career. In her last few years, Judith Keenan was able to see a couple of her son's concerts when the band came to Ohio. But in the 27 years after her aneurysm, Judy's condition had been steadily worsening. In the summer of 2003, Maynard received a call from his aunt that his mom was back in the hospital and no longer breathing on her own. Maynard rushed to be by her side and was there to hold his mom's hand when she passed away at the age of 59. Her ashes were spread throughout the Arizona vineyard Maynard runs today. One thing that helped Maynard with his loss was the comforting fact that he and his bandmates would be getting back into the studio very soon. After what had happened with the multiple album title fakeouts when Lateralis was announced, no one believed the band when they said the next album would be called 10,000 Days. Everyone was like, sure, that's the fake title. Then, sure enough, Tool pulled another fast one and never changed it. Tool's fourth studio album, 10,000 Days, debuted in May 2006. The album was named after the amount of time that elapsed between Judith Keenan's aneurysm and the day she died. You must have been After 10,000 Days, the band was just ready for a break. Maynard was daydreaming about his wine cellar and his little boy Devo, all of these life things that he wanted to immerse himself in. And creatively, they all needed time away. Putting out four full-length albums, live albums, touring constantly, the demon had been exercised and there was just nothing else to say at that moment. They had also gotten tangled up in legal battles again. Everyone was just fried. By the end of 2007, Danny, Adam, and Justin all went into hiding. Maynard tried, but he was always going to be the one left in the public eye, the one remaining connection fans still had for updates on Tool's music. The band knew they would be back together again to play music. That was never in question. But they didn't realize just how long they all needed. Part of Tool's mystique these days is the fact that they haven't released new music in 13 years. 
Typically, any other band, we might have lost interest by now. But Tool is different. 10,000 Days came out in 2006, and ever since then, fans have been on the edge with consistent rumors of a new album. It wasn't until earlier this year that a new Tool album seemed actually real for the first time. As far as I know, the band has announced just two major bits of information about the album. A release date, August 30th, 2019, and the fact that every song on this new album will be at least 10 minutes long. No title for the album has been announced yet, but as you know, they're a little weird about that. The constant dangling carrot of a new Tool album is the main reason for my brother's deep-seated trust issues with this band. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, I would be more excited about the album. Like, I would be just, you know... Uh, just shaking in my chair, but like they have been moving the, they had like a carrot on a stick for the past like five years. I feel like they've been announcing it and they've been talking about the release date and you know, eventually that does get exhausting. That gets exhausting after a while. And I know it's official right now, but I am not nearly as excited as I should be. Ugh, that's frustrating. Because of, because of the, yeah. Well, and you know, you can't trust for... what they're going to call it either. <laughs> I don't even know if I can trust the release date. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know what I can trust. No, you can't. You can't question everything. In May of this year, Tool debuted two new songs, Invincible and Descending, at Welcome to Rockville right here in Jacksonville. Somewhat ironically, despite this all happening about 30 minutes from my house, I was not in town for it. But as Maynard promised, both Invincible and Descending clock in at around 12 minutes. I'd play snippets for you here, but the only videos I could find have people talking through the whole thing, and it makes me completely crazy. Like, don't go see a band just to talk the whole time, especially if you're the first to hear new music from Tool. That's just infuriating. Anyway, if you can look past the talking, you can find both songs on YouTube. When the album comes out August 30th, follow us on Instagram at Radio Gaga Podcast for updates on that, and I'll probably do a mini-review when it releases. Famously, Tool is not on streaming services. However, just a few days ago, their demo, like earliest, earliest demo, 72826, popped up on Apple Music and a few other streaming services. Could it be they're going the way of King Crimson and we'll see Tool's discography on streaming soon? Maybe even before this new album comes out? I really hope so. The world needs it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I put a lot of time into these episodes, and it's really great knowing you're listening and enjoying. If you feel like giving the Radio Gaga podcast a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, I'd appreciate it. If not, the fact you're listening at all is enough for me. Thank you for being here and nerding out with me each week. Next week is another Song Stories episode, and this time we're covering a new song. It's one I've heard so many times, yet I know almost nothing about it or honestly why it's so popular, but I'd really like to. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your horse. We're doing a deep dive into the 2019 song Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. We'll discuss how a song goes viral, 
why this one has become such a massive hit, and what happened when it charted simultaneously on both the Billboard Country Hits and Hot R&B and Hip Hop charts earlier this year. So give that song a listen for the 80 trillionth time, and I'll see you back here next week. Oh,